0: You're listening to the Selling Energy Podcast, turbocharging the success of sales professionals around the world. Here's your host, Wall Street Journal's best-selling author and award-winning sales trainer, Mark Jewell. You must be a sales professional. Most organizations seeking to advance the sale of efficiency projects have widely varying staff roles supporting their mission. Utilities have account execs, program designers, program managers, third-party program implementation contractors, trade allies, program evaluators, and so on. Mechanical service contractors have business development staff, inside sales staff, dispatchers, and field techs. So how many roles in these and similar organizations really need to understand how to sell efficiency effectively? More than you might think. I'd like to start any discussion of selling efficiency more effectively with the following three guiding principles. Number one. Energy efficiency products, services, and programs all require effective selling. Number two, professional sales skills will help you advance any energy efficiency initiative regardless of your role in the process. And number three, you need to be a sales professional even if your job title does not include the word sales. Frankly, anyone in your organization who works with customers needs to understand efficiency-focused professional selling. They will uncover plenty of needs if they know what to look for, what questions to ask, how to field the customer's questions, and how to migrate a conversation from a service call to an exploration of how enhanced efficiency could make the customer's operation more competitive, profitable, and valuable. Moreover, their input will help you triangulate the organization's requirements so that you'll be more knowledgeable when your actual business development person ultimately connects with whatever person your customer staff has the final say on which products and services they will buy from you. On a related note, One of the hallmarks of sales professionalism is the ability to move from reactive to proactive sales. Can you really grow your business by simply fielding calls and producing estimates upon request? Think about it. By the time you hear about a project using this approach, you're often too late. There are several dimensions of being proactive. Number one, coaching others in the decision chain to drive requests for premium approaches. Number two, communicating compelling value propositions that preempt value engineering. And number three, selling directly to the owner. If you are proactive in developing interest in and demand for higher efficiency approaches, you'll be paving the way toward increased sales. Getting to the owner and communicating how your solution makes his or her life easier or more profitable sets the stage for more effective selling later on. By the way, having utility account reps, field service techs, and other non-traditional selling roles trained in efficiency-focused professional selling yields another vital advantage. It gives you the insight you need to take threads of information returned to you from your field operatives and craft them into proactive and compelling messages that will create demand for your offerings from the top of your prospect's organization. That intel from the field will also help you identify all the players who endorsements you'll need to soft circle prior to going to top management with the plan you feel confident will win organization wide approval. How often does saving money drive the decision? How often does the promise of saving money drive decisions? Well, let me rephrase that. Here in America, are we known as being a nation of savers? I don't think so. If we were, our cumulative credit card debt wouldn't have tripled since 1994. So what makes you think that when your prospects go to their offices, all of a sudden they become very careful with their money, or more precisely, with their boss's money? In fact, it's even worse because of the office, they're spending someone else's money. So let's just be careful about assuming that, oh, but look at all the money you're gonna save in the lower utility bills is gonna be the close that's gonna get the deal done. On a related note, there's a considerable amount of research out there suggesting that folks value avoidance of loss more heavily than the promise of gain. So if avoided utility expense is the crux of your benefits list, you might consider rephrasing this to communicate avoiding a serious loss rather than capturing a windfall. Do people really decide or simply compare? Attend our efficiency-focused professional sales training and you'll hear me say over and over again, most people don't make decisions, they make comparisons. And it's up for you to frame the comparison properly. Dan Ariely, an internationally renowned behavioral economist and author of two New York Times best-selling books, Predictably Irrational and The Upside of Irrationality, has done extensive research on how people make decisions. In his TED talk called are we in control of our own decisions? He presents several examples of decision-making scenarios that clearly demonstrate how significantly a selection can be swayed by the context and arrangement of possible choices. This eye-opener is one of several featured videos in our Efficiency Sales Professional Certificate Bootcamp. If you haven't viewed it already, I recommend you do so. There are countless examples of how this concept of decision versus comparison plays out in the context of getting efficiency projects approved. Let's start with the simplest case. Assume your prospect asks, what's the payback period? And you respond, three years. What comparison is that prospect making his mind? Well, I have money in my pocket now, and it feels pretty comfortable having access to that capital. If I do the investment you're proposing, I have to wait three years to get my money back. Uh, No thanks. But what if the prospect had asked, what's the return on investment, ROI? You respond, 33%. Now what comparison is the prospect making his head? Wow, I just returned from my bank and noticed that they're paying a 3% interest rate on a 36-month CD. This investment is 11 times that. Now, there's an inherent fallacy in comparing the ROI of an expense-reducing capital project with the rate of return on a federally insured CD. However, plenty of decision-makers feel totally comfortable using such apples and kiwi comparisons when making decisions. I'll give you an even crazier example. Years ago, I was presenting a project to a prospect. He asked me somewhat accusingly, what's the payback? As soon as I responded 3.2 years, He started shaking his head wildly as if he were being attacked by a swarm of angry bees. No way, he said. We don't do any projects around here with paybacks over three years. I'm sorry, we just don't do them. At that point, I responded with a softening statement, the conjunction and rather than but, and what I call a pattern interrupt. I said, John, I understand. I think what you'll find more interesting is that this investment sports a return on investment of more than 30% per year. As soon as he heard 30%, his eyes widened. He leaned forward and said, now that's a figure that would make my capital budgeting folks warm and cozy. Tell me more. Yep, that really happened. And all the more proof that people don't make decisions, they make comparisons. And efficiency sales professionals know that it's their responsibility to frame the comparison to make it obvious that saying yes to your project is the most rational or predictably irrational thing that your prospect can do. Are you even focusing on the right savings? If you want to capture the attention of a busy executive with the prospect of improving his building's energy-related systems, should you focus your elevator pitch and one-page proposal on projected savings in kilowatt hours, therms, or utility expenses? Or should you focus on something else that's nearer and dearer to your executive's heart and probably likely to move the needle in a more significant way? Consider the following assumptions in the context of a typical open office workspace. $40,000 average salary and benefits per person, 200 square feet occupied by each person, and $200 per square foot in payroll versus $2 per square foot in utilities. What if your efficiency campaign boosted productivity by just 1%? Let's go back to those assumptions. Assume that your average office employee makes $40,000 per year and sits on a floor that's been designed to accommodate 5 people per 1,000 square feet. That's $40,000 divided by 200 square feet or $200 per square foot in payroll. What's your utility bill? If yours is an average office building in the continental United States, it's probably around $2 a square foot. That means that your payroll is 100 times as large as your utility bill on a per square foot basis. If you're a manager, what should you be focusing on? Let's say you're selling an energy efficiency upgrade that's expected to have a positive impact on occupant comfort or convenience. Think about it. On most tenant satisfaction surveys, too hot, too cold appears at or near the top of the list of tenant concerns. Could a new direct digital control system make people more thermally comfortable? What about lighting quality? Would your energy efficient lighting system reduce glare? Or improve the quality of lighting so the occupants working under it are better able to do their jobs? Perhaps less eye strain? Fewer headaches? Fewer mistakes? What if you sell window films that reduce the heat and glare of the afternoon sun on the south and west facing sides of a commercial office building? Might the workers in perimeter offices be at least 1% more effective and they didn't need to squint with the sun in their eyes for an hour or more in the afternoon? Do any of these upgrades have the potential to improve the productivity of building occupants by at least 1%? Before you answer that question, let's think about what a 1% improvement would entail. If you do the math, you'll realize that if an office worker present for 10 hours a day is able to work an additional six minutes a day as a result of an improvement you make to his or her workspace, you will have accomplished a 1% productivity uptick. Six minutes a day. The last time I looked, six minutes was equivalent to two turns of one of those Williams-Sonoma sand-filled hourglass timers that signal a perfectly cooked softballed egg. Two turns of a tiny hourglass egg timer. That's all it takes. Do you think a person that has to leave his or her desk and go to the break room to get a cup of coffee or tea to warm up because the workplace is overly air-conditioned, wastes more or less than six minutes a day doing so? And what if they stop by somebody else's desk to kvetch about the temperature? Maybe their colleague joins them for a coffee break. Maybe the coffee is so lousy they leave the building together and go to Starbucks to warm up. How many minutes of productivity would that waste? And by the way, in case you're thinking this is too fanciful a value proposition to sway a jaded executive decision-making process, you'll be interested to hear a story that one of our ninjas recently shared with me. He was interested in selling an HVAC replacement project valued at $1.6 million to a highly occupied building that was having both maintenance and comfort problems. His prospect preferred a quick fix that would have solved the most critical comfort problems and cost almost a million dollars less. When our well-trained sales professional was invited by senior management to present the alternatives so they could determine which of these two paths the company would be approving, he came prepared with some very interesting non-utility cost financial savings data in his back pocket. He first described to senior management the cost and implications of each of the two solutions. He paused, and then he casually added that the more expensive system produced as little as 1.2 minutes of additional productivity per day. For each of the workers occupying that facility, the value of the productivity savings would equal the value of the $1.6 million project's annual energy savings. After a half-minute or so of silence, the most senior executive in the room said, That can't be right. Rather than protesting, the sales professional simply replied, How do you mean? The executive continued, It has to be at least a five minute daily comfort advantage, doesn't it? After a few more minutes of discussion, the exec directed his staff to prepare the paperwork they needed to approve the larger project. The moral of the story, there are three categories of benefits, utility cost financial, non-utility cost financial, and non-financial. An efficiency sales professional carefully considers each and every one of those benefit categories in order to present a proposed project in its most favorable light. sales professional as symphony conductor. When planning your strategy for closing the complex sale, one of the first questions you need to ask is, how many stakeholders will be involved in the buying process, either as an initiator, a gatekeeper, an influencer, a decision maker, a procurement specialist, or an end user? Those six classifications, by the way, are the subject of an insightful Harvard Business Review article called, Major Sales, Who Really Does the Buying? The next question you need to answer is, What does each of these stakeholders value? The third and final question to ponder is, how can I reframe my proposal so that it resonates with those values? Pursuing these three steps in this order will equip you with the insights you need to soft circle approval of all players before you seek to close the sale. By the way, imagine what would happen if you didn't take the time to understand what each of these people thought about energy efficiency. What if you did what most people do and tried to sell a single stakeholder on the energy efficiency improvement? Ask yourself a simple question. Do you really want the success of your sales process to hinge on that one person's ability to translate and communicate your value proposition to everybody else around that table? Realize that your internal champion cannot approve, fund, and implement the project alone. If you sidestep your responsibility to do all the selling, your outcome will be largely dependent on the uncertain ability of someone else to sell your project for you. Are you willing to take that risk? Let's assume you're trying to sell an energy upgrade to a multi-tenant commercial building and your initial point of contact is the property manager. Few property managers can unilaterally decide to move forward with a major energy project. The manager has to convince the budgeting folks to authorize the capital. He or she has to convince the engineering staff that the project will not have any deleterious impacts on the building's mechanical systems. The manager also needs to convince the tenants that any temporary inconvenience caused by the installation is worth enduring. If capital cost recovery language will be used to recoup the landlord's investment in the upgrade by clawing back some or all of the utility savings, the tenants also need to be briefed on how that process will actually work. And they need to be assured that doing the project in the first place makes sense, even though they may not see any real savings for several years, while the resulting utility bill reductions are being diverted to amortize the initial investment, plus interest in some cases. Sales professionals are like symphony conductors. The quality of the music they produce is a direct consequence of the collaboration between their players. The more they understand who those players are, what each values, and what each is capable of contributing, the sweeter their music, i.e. their deal flow, will be.